Well, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, my name is Dave Deptula. I'm the Dean of the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies, and welcome to this version of our Aerospace Nation series. Um, we've got a great Christmas treat for you today. Uh, we're pleased to have with us uh, General Jeff Cobra Harigian, uh, the uh, commander of United States Air Forces in Europe, commander of United States Air Forces in Africa, uh, as well as uh, the commander of Allied Air Command. And he also serves as the director of the Joint Air Power Competence Center uh, in Europe. Uh, in all these roles, a uh, combination thereof, uh, he commands and controls uh, air power for 30 uh, NATO uh, allies and partners, uh, as well as overseeing air power operations for over 19 million square miles of the uh, surface of the earth. So. Uh, Cobra, thanks very much for joining us today. It's really great to have you here. And uh, what I thought I'd do is uh, kind of kick this off by giving you an opportunity to tell us and our audience a little bit about what's on your plate and what are your priorities are for uh, those areas that I talked about that you're responsible yeah. for. So over to you. Well, first, thanks for uh, the opportunity to be here with you. And let me take this opportunity to thank Mitchell Institute for all you do for uh, our airmen, our families. I can certainly tell you that uh, overseas, it's uh, it's much appreciated all that you do. Uh, and so from our perspective, you know, it really starts out with our, our number one priority resolves completely around our people and how we make sure we uh, we take care of them. And as you know, with your time overseas, uh, it really has been a, a challenge as we've worked through COVID and the myriad of operations that we've accomplished while doing that. But I would tell you that uh, they have continued to demonstrate uh, resiliency that you would, you would be proud of, and I know our nation is proud of, but it takes uh, a dedicated effort from our leadership to continue to get after those particular issues that uh, our families need overseas, what our airmen need to have the appropriate resources to execute the, uh, the mission sets that are asked of them which naturally then leads into my second priority, which has to do with our readiness and ensuring that collectively across our force, whether that be our fighters, the tankers, the, uh, the air ground ops wing, and all the components are ready for whatever contingency that may occur. And that you know, could largely be focused uh, there in the European region, but uh, we can't remember that uh, or forget that we have our folks down in Africa and um, ensuring that they're resourced and they have the pro proper uh, equipment to do what we're asking them to do because uh, some remote areas, very expeditionary down there and ensuring that uh, as we look at their force posture, where we've got them laid down, that that is again um, in alignment with what the AFRICOM commander is looking for, but at the same time, making sure that uh, we're, we're taking care of them and, uh, and that rotational requirement. The third piece comes down to, I would call it more broadly, our posture. And, and I think, uh, you know, as you and DC have, have watched our, our global posture review and where we've gone uh, forward with respect to that, it is uh, a key piece of, of what you see us do every day with respect to assuring our allies and partners, uh, executing the deterrence missions that are in, incredibly important to us as a nation, and that means that we've got to be in the right places at the right time with the right capabilities. And so that is something that we're constantly working on. And uh, I think we'll talk a little bit later about agile combat employment and what that means to us from a posture perspective and, and what we're thinking about that. Uh, 
my uh, fourth priority is one that uh, I, I know you're you're quite familiar with. But in our neck of the woods, it's all about partnerships, whether that be the alliance and NATO, uh, the partners I'm working with uh, down in Africa. And let's not forget those that are not NATO up in the high north, uh, as you've seen, you know, with, with what Finland just decided to do and, and the Swedes. Uh, great partners that I think it's incredibly important that we continue to build the interoperability, the tactics, techniques, and procedures that are so integral to what we do every day. And if, if we're not uh, working that on a daily basis, then when you know crisis happens, we'll, we'll find ourselves in, in not a good place. And I would probably say most importantly that what I would tell you is this isn't just at my level. I mean, this is down at the squadron level, the, the NCO level, uh, building that trust and confidence across the force such that when we pick up the phone, we know who we're talking to. We've built those relationships. And it's not a, you know, follow us. It's a together. We're going to go execute these missions. So really comes back to people, readiness, posture, and partnerships. And those are the four things that I'm, I'm really focused on. Well, very good. Appreciate that rundown. Um, so before we jump into the audience questions, I've got a couple for you myself that uh, I'm sure is on the uh, the tip of the tongue of many out there who are watching us. Um, this past August to October, um, you supported uh, what essentially was the largest airlift, humanitarian airlift of personnel. Uh, cargo is still held by Operation uh, Unified Assistance. Um, uh, but could you give us a little insight on that operation and what its impact was from your perspective? Yeah, so first... Uh... You know, I, I have to tell you, I couldn't have been more proud of the way all of you safety pulled together to make this happen. I think yeah, everybody recognized that uh, it happened very quickly. We had minimum time to prepare. Uh, but to me, it demonstrated the agility and um, capabilities that are inherent to our Air Force. Some of those capabilities that you just talked about in terms of your priority. Yeah, exactly. And um, you know, what I would highlight first is you look at, thank God we had Ramstein. We also used Spang Gollum because Spang had a, a large uh, air mobility ramp that we had anywhere from 10 to 15 large wing airplanes every day. And we were able to then manage what was, frankly, a, a little bit of an unknown in terms of the flow that was coming our way from Afghanistan. Right. Um, now, probably not told as widely was when we first got notice, we had about two days to prepare. And um, again, there were families out there with their teenagers helping us build tents. Wow. It, it, it was incredible. Yeah. I mean, they came out of the war work. It was one of those, Hey, we need help. <clears throat> and people showed up. And then um, we started to tailor the force from inside you safety. There were no RFFs. We weren't, we had no time to go back and ask the Air Force for help. We were going to lean into this together because that's what the time frame uh, we were operating under with. So then as we set up the tents and, you know, if you think about the basic needs that anybody's, you know, food, water, hygiene, uh, medical, those types of things, that we had to, that, that was all constructed from kind of from nothing. And then, uh, you know, as, as you look at it, we ended up in some, processing about 35,000 Afghans through. At the high point, we had 21,000 on base. Now, I will highlight, we did have some 
great cooperation with the Army. U.S. Army came down and we were the supported commander. They rolled in, provided seven soldiers, opened up Rhine Ordnance Barracks, and we balanced between Ramstein and uh, Rob, as we call it. And uh, that capacity was absolutely necessary for the number of people we had. Can't forget, let's go back to partnerships. What the German government did to facilitate this and allow us to do it, same thing happened down in Spain. Uh, those, are, you know, yeah. those are the kind of things that if we right. hadn't had that trust and partnership, it wasn't going to happen. Now, the good news is, you know, and amongst all this, I don't know if you know this, but we had 39 babies born there. <laughs> no, and, I didn't. And um, the unique part of it, uh, you know, as Kathy and I walked out in the flight line was 40% of them were kids. Wow. So my point to the American public is there are going to be great Americans that felt the love of uh, our airmen who were fundamentally key to the success of bringing them right. in, wrapping our arms around them, uh, telling them we're going to take care of them and then get them on airplanes. Even after we had a little, you know, we were going through vaccinations and we had to do the right things to get them back to the States. But that was done by our 18, 19, 20 year old airmen who had support from our German friends. The, you know, we, we had all yeah. that going on. And I guess the last point I would tell you was, um, because this is pretty cool. Needed donations, right? These Afghans came off the airplanes with no. clothes on their back. And so uh, they did the, started with the first sergeants and the spouses said, we got this. And uh, they generated over a hundred tons of um, clothing, pretty much any diapers or right. anything you could name with. And they built a system where they brought it in, then they divvied it out such that when an individual walked off the airplane, they went, here's your bag of clothes. And then as it got colder, they went back out and said, here's your winter clothes. So um, the, wow. you know, from the heart yeah. of what, you know, not only Americans, because we had Germans and we had people come in from all over to help us. It was an incredible story. And, and you know, that's beyond, I quantify that as the human piece of it. Because that's beyond just the airlift and the, the command and control that was required. And so uh, my hat's off to the uh, entire team. I, I'm hopeful uh, someday they, you know, will kind of get beyond the, the politics of it all. There's a great story there. Yeah. And uh, we're going to have some young Afghan kids that show up in America that love America. Yeah. For, for the way that, that they got started as they came across the pond. Yeah, America. no, thanks for that. Because what you spoke about before uh, in the context of partnership and people, uh, and it's an intangible, mm -hmm. but it's a very, very important one in the context of what you just talked about. So let me kind of segue off of that in the context of partnerships, but also bring us to the fact that you recently stood up uh, first uh, F-35 U.S. unit in uh, Lake and Heath. Mm -hmm. And uh, could you comment a little bit, not just on that significance, but also the significance of having partners and allies operate uh, this fifth generation system and capability all together? No, it's uh, uh, an exciting time for us, as you can imagine. Uh, the 495th got stood up in October, and we're looking forward to the arrival of the jets here, uh, uh, certainly uh, in the near future. Uh, 
to me, it really starts, and if you don't mind, I kind of break it down in my mind, at least from the strategic to the operational and tactical level is kind of the way that I think about it. Because strategically, uh, you know, the, think about the deterrence value of getting uh, F-35s in theater. And um, as we broadly look at the opportunities that that will provide us in terms of where we're going to position them, how we package them, uh, that will be an important part of how we talk about it across uh, really all domains because we're going to be working with all our partners uh, in each of the domains as well to, to bake the airplane into the way that we do business. Operationally, uh, the beauty of it is the interoperability piece. And uh, as you know, I talk with our Norwegian partners, the Dutch, the Italians, the UK, they are... Uh, they're chomping at the bit to get our airplanes into theater because it'll make it so much easier for us to do some of the things that, uh, you know, they've seen us doing in the States. They've read about, they've had that training largely back at Luke, and now it'll be uh, much easier for us. Routine to on a day -day yeah, basis. It's, uh, it'll build the muscle memory we need in theater to be able to respond quickly. And then at the, the tactical level. Um, so here's what I would tell you. First off, um, kind of the next layer over here was we just did an F-35 users group. So we've had this meeting. I think General Walter started it right before I got there uh, since about 2015, 2016. So twice a year, we get together all the F-35 air chiefs to talk about how things are going. And it used to be early on, we talked about a lot of the challenges of the weapon system. It was, you know, you and right. I both know right. we've seen the, you know, any weapon system early on. So we just had our last meeting. We did it in Israel. And uh, what I would share with, with everyone out there is we've gone from the nuances of a, of a new weapon system to operationalizing it and normalizing it. So the Italians came in and talked about uh, Falcon Strike, uh, an exercise they did that was, I think it was 120 jets where it was all about fourth, fifth gen integration. And as you watch them provide the debrief, all you can think to yourself is hmm, two to three years, we've come a long way. We're talking about TTPs. We're right. talking about how to optimize not only the F-35, but the whole joint force because it was integrated with ships and they, you know, they had the air maritime and space involved with all this. And those are the, um, that is the underpinning of success that an F-35 brings because we speak the common language uh, and we, we've worked our way through many of the issues. And, and if you don't mind, I just I think it's important because what we did was in the users group, we said, hey, we're going to talk about um, operational training, the infrastructure. We're going to talk about TTPs. We're going to talk about maintenance, logistics, cross-servicing, and those kinds of things that we want to be able to do right. as we go forward. And then the last one, which is an important one, is just the security side of the house. I will, and this has been a, a challenge for me that I, that I love to run into the wall on several times, <laughs> but, but, but we have to figure out how we break through some of the barriers so that we can truly get everything out of the, the airplane and not be inhibited by some of those things that um, I believe we make it hard to do that sometimes. And I, I, I know you know that. Policy um, and bureaucracy. Yeah. Yeah, we got to. So cut through that. And, and, you know, from my lens, there's ways to do that. And we have to do it smartly. You know, I'm, I don't want to be seen as someone that's pushing too hard on this other than to say that 
um, if we're going to do this and we, and we got to go fight together, then I, we got to be lockstep with each other, understanding what the threat is, what our airplanes are telling each other. And there's ways to protect the stuff we need to protect because they, they're going to have things they want to protect. Right. And we can figure out ways to do that. I think we've got to keep uh, collectively as an enterprise leaning into that to get it right. So yeah, I know I think you're hundred percent spot on. I think hopefully that we can use artificial intelligence and machine to machine learning and communication to, you know, you, you, you set the policy parameters and then you let the machines work it out. So we don't have to waste time uh, doing that, you know, yeah. through discussion. Well, and that, you know, we can, talk a little jazzy to an abms and all that but i i do think that um as we get to those specific topics what i my position has been hey let's not try to you know let's not solve world hunger here there are specific parts whether you look at the kill chain or the kill web right that you can get after exactly what you're talking about of which f-35 fits in there so does raptor and you yep. can kind of connect the dots but let's go figure out where specifically we need to solve those machine to machine problems and then get the right people on them and incrementally over time build that out such that we achieve the longer term roadmap that you know you tend to see in the powerpoint slides that maybe uh, you know their vision it's good but you know i don't disagree with that but from where we sit um i think our job has been to lay out what is the specific problem we have yeah with respect to, to right. this machine to machine piece, and let's go get after that, right. um, because I, I think right. we can solve those. Well, I, that's great to hear, and uh, maybe when we get rid of uh, finally get rid of some of the uh, encumbrances like uh, JPO, which uh, uh, needs to sunset uh, sooner than the five years that's in the NDAA, but at least it's in there now. So let's transition a bit to. One of the topics that you you alluded to early on, and that's this whole notion of agile combat employment. Yeah. Um, we know our adversaries are getting more and more savvy and can threaten us in the, the, the locations that are well known. But give us your insights into just how things are going in that regard in your yeah. part of the world. So um, I think context is important here because uh, I was uh, thinking about this when we were kind of thinking through topics and that. Uh, it was probably back in uh, 19, General, when General Brown was PACAF, and I had just taken over at USAFE, we latched up and said, hey, we're going to go and brief the senior leadership of the Air Force about what Agile Combat Employment is to USAFE and, and PACAF. And there was the, oh, you know, this, this is going to be hard. Uh, but what I would tell you is um, a, a couple of things. First off, again, I'll kind of categorize it strategic to tactical. We needed to generate dilemmas for the adversaries. What, you, you, you know, but we, we know we got to do it different and slightly different new safety than they're going to do it in back Uh But w with the capabilities that were being developed by our adversaries, the TTPs we were seeing out of them, uh, the way we were operating, was was not going to be survivable and so uh you know as we get the smart people around the room we're like okay let's look at ways that we can kind of go back to what we used to do in terms of being more agile the way we move our stuff around and um so we've each had to look at it through our lens and inside you safety for me it was uh instead of tyranny of distance it was tyranny of proximity we're close we, we are in the fight right 
and and, and we just can't walk our way out of it based on uh, the threats that are being developed out there. So this required us to then internally look at, okay, let's build the, the broader CONOP. How does this thing, you know, what do we think it's going to work like? And then let's get into the actual employment capabilities. And uh, we provided that to the wings. And then in essence, what I said was, go experiment, go figure out what's going to work for you. And uh, what I would tell you is that uh, operationally now, the wings have a much better sense of what they think they need. And, and you know, early on, they're like, well, appetite was pretty large. We're going to have all these different bases. And we kind of had to do a little appetite suppressant and said, okay, stick with three to five that you're going to go to because we need to think about the logistics piece of this right. pre-pro and all those other things that are going to go into that. And then uh, let's get in there and operate with our partners because clearly access basing sure. is going to be an important part, part of how we do this. And so uh, you, you would not be surprised, but there are nations that have just embraced it. It's good for them. I mean, they, right. they see the, the benefit, not only, uh, you know, some of the smaller nations may not have a big air force, but they go, but you can use our base and we're going to be there for you and we'll support you with calm or whatever you need. And that's been an important part of it then operationally that we've, we've learned over time. The third piece, and arguably, I would tell you this is the most important piece because it kind of goes back to people. Um, this is about empowerment. This is when you put, I'll give you a great example. Um, the Lake and Heath, uh, the C model guys went up to Estonia with about 80 people. They took eight jets, one tanker, and a captain was in charge. And they operated out of there for, I think, four or five days. They flew with the Finns. They flew with the Swedes. You know, they're flying DACT, increase in readiness. And, you know, I'm just watching from afar going, oh, this is pretty good. Well, I go see this young captain. I'm like, hey, so how was it? He's like, oh, sir, it, it was awesome. I go, anybody get hurt? No. Anybody die? No. Awesome. You guys crushed it. And uh, this is where we move beyond just talking. Yeah. And truly empowering them to go, hey, let's, you know, get out there, execute and build some of that confidence. And some of that confidence has to come where we give them a little, you know, rope right. to go deal right. with. Right. And, and then they got to they got to work through it. Um, and so that that has been I would tell you, that's the inner workings of it that not a lot of people are talking about, but I think is really important. If we're going to do these things where we're like, Hey, we're going to do mission type orders. We get a little bit caught up in all that, but at the end of the day, it's an individual on the ground who's going to have to make a decision. And so I'll just kind of close this thought on one of the things that it, it's occurred to me. We have to work on though is so, you know, when you flew Eagles and you did a four V 10 or whatever, you were making all those decisions real world, right? on the fly and, you know, commit, et cetera, et cetera. How do we help these um, debt commanders, you know, that they own 80 people over there? How do we kind of put them in an environment where they have to make some of these, hey, I need to flush the force. How, you know, you can do it in tabletops and those right. kind of things, but I think we need to think our way through as we broaden our aperture for exercising, 
how we put them in that environment and then reinforce with them, hey, that was a good decision or uh, probably you didn't need to, to, to leave yeah. at that particular point. Yeah. Because it's, this isn't just about survival. It's about generating combat power. And um, while we've you know, kind of done the basics, the crawl, walk, to take it to the next level, I think we, we got to spend some more time thinking about how we're going to exercise and foster an environment that puts them under pressure to make those types of decisions. Yeah, well, that's great to hear. Um, you know, one of my mantras uh, over the years was that micromanagement is a disease and we have way too much of it in our military writ large. And so it's great to hear that you're empowering people, and particularly in, as you just described, uh, in agile combat employment, because it gives them that expertise and then it provides them the, the exposure to the partners plus challenging and thinking about some of these very difficult problems. So a bit of a follow-up, um, could you talk to the audience a little bit and give us the uh, insights from uh, uh, Exercise Castle Forge? I, I don't think the audience is probably familiar yeah. with that, but uh, what, what happened there? What's that yeah, all so about? Yeah, so the... Uh... The big idea here was we had done most of our agile combat employment internal to use safety. So our wings had been moving around, working through their TTPs, the logistic piece of it, et cetera, et cetera. And what we wanted to test out as uh, we you know, continue our drive towards IOC was to bring an ACC unit in and bake right. them in and see how uh, the training that's happening in CONUS, how it uh fits into the way we do business. So uh, we brought them in uh, to Greece and then had them uh, move across the AOR to multiple locations. You know, they were fighting all kinds of different, you know, from the Med in the Black Sea. Uh, but really what it allowed us to do is dig into, uh, do, do they bring the right uh, comm gear? What do they need for support? Is their package similar to what we're doing? So some real good lessons learned. Um, we're in the ballpark. It's, it's not exactly right, but uh, that's the kind of feedback that I needed to get back to General Kelly and his team back at ACC to continue on this journey together on how they're preparing their folks to come park into the way we do business. Right. And what I would tell you is uh, probably the key lessons were, uh, we, like I said, we got work to do on weapons. And there's diplomatic things and uh, sure. logistics we have to work on there. Probably the big one really, though, was the comm side of the house. And, uh, you know, we, we have a tendency to uh, want to bring, you know, big satellite dishes and trying to figure out how we miniaturize that, bring small packages of capability that allow them to quickly get up on Nipper, Sipper and JWix, and do that with, um, I'll just use the term multi-capable airmen, which is, we ought to be able to bring people that are comm guys, not some high speed, you know, combat comm. Train them to be able to do that. So they come in, set it up. And, I, you know, just out at Nellis, they were giving us a demo on some of the things they're working on to do that. And right. so I would offer to the, the group what, what we need to do is quantify that for big Air Force. And then we got to do it across the enterprise. And it's not going to be 100 percent right. But my position is we need to move out. And right. We're not going to get a hundred percent solution. And as they start palming and doing those kind of things, let's get it close. And we got to move out. And so um, I think between uh, what we've done and what PACAS done, we're on the ballpark now. And I think we have enough to 
provide those requirements to them to to then procure them and now keep this training going. Well, it's great to hear that um, yeah, moving out on uh, agile combat employment, and it, it's more than just a capability or more than just a concept now that it's actually uh, yeah. uh, roosting. On a, uh, on a similar vein, um, we notice and read about in the headlines there are a lot of, uh, there's been a lot of attention to the bombers that have been coming out into your area of operation uh, long range strike and participating uh, in a variety of different events and exercises. Could you give us your uh, impression of the the utility of uh, long range bombers and kind of what's unique to them and what kind of capabilities they provide to your uh, yes. enterprise? So thanks for asking that. You know, uh, when General Ray was at Global Strike, uh, he and I had a discussion about how we appropriately tailor not only the the bomber task force missions when they come to Fairford or, you know, some of the other locations we sent them to, but also the CONUS to CONUS missions to find the right mix. And uh, as we did that, you know, naturally up front, it was about the deterrence value of it and, and make sure that we're um, putting in in the right places of, in the AOR to ensure the adversaries were noticing. Pretty straightforward. Uh, but initially, to be quite frank, we were doing a lot of picture taking and it was more about messaging, which is important sure. than some of the uh, TTPs and actual activities that we're now doing when we bring Bomber Task Force in. So we have taken it to the next level. And, uh, you know, we have a couple of great LNOs that are, live with us at Global Strike and um, we've been able to work with them. And, and honestly, the partners now want to be in it. I can tell you I've had partner air chiefs call me and say, hey, next one, we want to practice A, B, or C, whether that be running intercepts against them or escorting them into a particular area for them to practice uh, weapons delivery. And that um, is the kind of unquantifiable impact that um, as you look at the mission sets, it's from the high north to central Europe, down to the med and even into the Black Sea. And so uh, as, as we lay out these con ops, because uh, I just approved the next one that we're going to have here in a couple months, it's, uh, it's really good to see the specificity that we're able to get to from a tactical perspective on how we bake them into what we're going to do. Because I would argue one of the larger benefits, not only from supporting the partners, but it's for the units that come in and get them familiar with flying in Europe. Yeah. So that if we ask them to do it, it won't be their first time. And they understand how to work with Euro control, you know, the, right. the, those things. What's that, unique. Right. Yeah. What's different when they come into Europe or, you know, going into the high north, you know, there, there's some some nuances there that if we haven't done it, we don't want to wait to right. do that in crisis. Right. And so, um, you know, the, the trajectory of, of where we're going with that and, and the partners embracing it has been really uh, a huge step forward for all of us. Well, that's great to hear. A bit of a follow-up. What what do you view that's unique about the bomber force that's different than the other combat aircraft you have in theater? Yeah, so I, I think the, uh, first off, the, the, the bombers give uh, us the ability to, to provide a little bit of uh, strategic ambiguity because we're not always doing the same thing with them. 
Um, you know, there's almost a pattern of life we do with our fighters because they take off, they train, right. they, they kind of do the, the, uh, the same thing every day. Although Agile Combat Employment's helping us with that. But the bombers uh, clearly are recognized by our adversaries. They know when we're coming. Uh, they also recognize that what we're training from a, a standoff perspective um, is an area that for me, it allows us to refine our targeting. It has a deterrent value that um, I would offer is hard to quantify. Sure. You know, it, it's one of those assessment areas we have to continue to pick at. Uh, but frankly, we get our best feedback from the partners who are very familiar with what the adversary is thinking and seeing. And that's the best feedback, feedback right. that we get with respect to the impact of what the bombers bring to us which we don't get with our, with our standard fighters. Got it. No, that's very good. So um, let's turn to a topic that is exploding in the news. I don't think that's an understatement. I'm driving in today, listening to, uh, I tend to listen to all the different perspectives out there, but it's generally on every, every station that's Ukraine and uh, the, the, the threatening uh, buildup that, uh, uh, Mr. Putin has uh, instigated, and we know that you can't talk about specifics with respect to contingency planning, but can you give us a little bit of a feel of uh, where that sits on your priority scale and, and, and some thoughts surrounding the situation? Yeah, well, certainly we're, we're spending a lot of time thinking about it. And, um, you know, again, from, uh, from where I sit as, as we work our way through this, job one for me is to offer my best military advice to to General Walters and allow him to do that up through the secretary. And our focus internally has really been, as we look across, uh, you know, kind of air and space for us is, hey, we got to make sure we're ready. And that readiness piece is in, uh, it's, it's across not only just the airplanes, but it's also the people. You know, I talked a little sure. bit about the resiliency piece and making sure that everybody's got their head on straight and we're, we're focused on understanding the environment. And, and the idea here is to, to be able to ensure that as we look at how this shapes out over the period of time, because arguably, you know, we all want diplomacy to work. And, right. uh, and I think as uh, we work through any options that we present, it's going to all be about, hey, let's drive down the potential for miscalculation or something that uh, puts ourselves in a situation where the military is taking away decision space from our superiors. And for me, that has a lot to do about how I communicate that to the force. I mean, if, if we think about when, when we were captains out there flying, you know, you, there's a certain amount of intensity you have with those things that you're doing where you potentially could be interacting with an adversary out there. So we got to make sure that that's clear in everybody's, in everybody's right. head. And so we'll work through, uh, as you highlighted, uh, options that will run up the chain and, and we'll be ready. And, and when I say that, We'll be ready not only from an air and space perspective, but really across all domains, because I think we need to make sure from an information domain, cyber domain, everybody's got their head in the game here on what we're seeing, how we share that understanding, particularly with our allies and partners, so that we understand uh, should decisions get made, how we fit into the, right. the broader uh, strategy. No, very good. I appreciate that. Um, Interesting. Uh, we'll, yeah, we'll see how how things uh, unfold. Uh, uh, but uh, it, it's great to hear that you're preparing your folks and uh, 
uh, have good grip on the situation. Now, let me switch gears here a little bit uh, to a subject that's near and dear to both of our hearts. Um, for our audience, this past Saturday saw the graduation of the last F-15C weapons school class um, out at uh, Nellis uh, uh, Air Force Base. And uh, this past Friday, uh, General Harrigian and I participated along with 500 of our brothers and uh, sisters in a celebration um, of that event. And I, I would tell you, I, uh, showing my age a bit, but I was a graduate of the F-15 uh, weapons school course in 1981 and uh, Cobra was in 1995. So um, he was there and spoke at the event. Could you share with our audience some of your thoughts and feelings about uh, seeing the F-15C uh, weapons school uh, sunset and uh, what that means for the future? Yeah, uh, well, thanks. And it was great to see you out there and see, as you said, uh, a lot of folks we hadn't seen for a long time. But, uh, you know, I, for me, as we sit here today, number one, I, I, what I would tell you is uh, nobody, no group of people understood or understand air superiority better than the F-15Cs. Now the Raptor guys are in there, but because um, I was one of those guys too. But <laughs> at the end of the day, uh, that, that foundation for me was built, built in the C model community. And what I would offer to anyone who's, who's listening is we, we cannot lose that. As we go forward as an Air Force, as a joint force, understanding job one is air superiority cannot be forgotten. And just because we're, you know, the C model weapon school is going away, which makes sense. I mean, we, we got to go sure. there. We cannot lose that DNA because that's what we do. And um, I, I think at least looking out the crowd and you saw the, you know, the young patches, I have great confidence they'll do that. The key will be that those that are senior listen because uh, there, there's a skill set there that I would argue as we think about uh, multi-mission airplanes and all those kinds of uh, discussions that we're going to have. Uh, there's something to be said for that. And I know I'm, you know, I'm, I'm probably emotionally attached to it because I did it for a long time as, as a view. And it's important to, to recognize that it's, it's, it's key to our nation. It's key to what we do. Um, and this, you know, the second thing I would tell you is um, when you think about the weapon school and the leaders and, and the folks that, you know, have come from, from that institution and, and that organization, uh, that, that really, you know, you, you can have a mission set, but you got to have people that are willing to stand up and offer an argument that's unemotional, it's underpinned by logic, and is presented in a way that's, that's thoughtful. And that's, uh, that's what I, I see of uh, those that came from the C-model community. And it, they're, you know, I don't want to, it's not denigrating anybody else, but, you know, I, I have a certain amount of pride for the way that they did that. And to me, and, you know, I don't know what you thought about it. I thought it came from the way we briefed, executed, debriefed each other, and then drove standards that if you didn't meet the standard, hey, you go do it again. And that's okay. We'll get you to the standard. And uh, finding ways to teach people in a manner that brought their game to just levels that you know, you didn't even think you could get there. Yeah. That, that's that's yeah. what happened in that. Yeah. that that little bubble we operated in and that was the beauty of the place yeah um and then at the end of the day 
you know, when you talk about being a good wingman and taking care of each other, uh, that community, I, you know, we were small. I think we were only like 500 graduates from, I think that was about, it's about ballpark, a little bit less than that. But yeah. Yeah. Over what's 40 plus years. So it's, it's yeah. not a huge number. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, I know that DNA will live in our Air Force, but I think so, now's a good time to remind ourselves of that. Yeah. And um, I'm happy to pound the table and say, we, we got to figure out how we do this right in the future. Yeah, no, that's all wonderful. Let me add one or another twist on that, because um, what happened, what was different about when I went to weapons school, when you went to weapons school, was in 1981, it was fighter weapons school. You know, and there were F-15s, F-16s, uh, A-10s, but the A-4s, had, or not the A-4s, the F-4s had gone away. Um, but now we have 35 different divisions. And it's that integration piece. We're now at a captain level. The four C's that it's not just about your MDS it's about having to work with all these other folks. And I'm reminded, you know, I participated in the reblue on Wednesday. Um, our folks from the space community are integral into now all of the exercises that we do. So push it. And I, I think back to Desert Storm where, the, you know, there are not a whole lot of people, even at colonel and general officer level, who had the understanding of the integration that was required to make that air campaign such a success. And now we've pushed it down to the captain level. And like you say, as you're talking, I'm thinking, you know, back to 81. And before I went to weapons school and then afterwards, I didn't know that you could put so much into one mission. And that's what that training does for us. Okay, well, we could talk about this one for a long time. Uh, and uh, uh, particularly if we got some, to, some liquor into us. But being that as it may, let's uh, come back to some reality here. Uh, JADC2 is a pretty popular topic. Can you talk a little bit about the value of putting a combined uh, yeah. nomaker up front of all of that and working in a, in a combined environment? Yeah, well, first off, what I, my perspective on that is JADC2 without our partners is a non-starter. <laughs> in the neck of the woods that uh, you know, I work in, we, we need them to contribute to how we do this. You know, there's the, I think everybody understands the why. And, you know, when you talk about information advantage, decision-making at speed, everybody acknowledges that. But, you know, what I argue is, okay, that's great. How are we going to do this? Do it, right. And so we've been, I think, over time seeing uh, a little more meat on the bones here. And the partners are asking the question, hey, how do we get into this? And, and how do we contribute to this such that, we're, va we're value added and that when we talk about machine to machine AI, that they are contributors to where we go together in the future. And so, um, again, I'll kind of go back to the uh, vignette I said up front is, as we look at, uh, you know, perfect example for us is air domain awareness. We've got partners that have sensors all over the AOR. We need to figure out how we inside the security architecture that we operate in, right. connect those and then feed them into the, these systems that we're talking about that allow us to connect machine to machine and then have a shared understanding of the environment. And so uh, we're working through some options back to the, the, the ABMS team, at least inside the Air Force, but actually we're finding 
the Army, the Navy, they've got uh, some ideas too here that collectively will afford us an opportunity, I think, in an incremental way to continue to figure out how we plug these things together and then leverage them to make decisions faster. Now, those could be, it could be a kill chain. It could be right. an operational decision. Uh, you know, right now we're largely focused on the tactical side of the house, because at least from my perspective, I see some quicker wins there than kind of the overarching strategic, you know, Leo and all the other things that we got to get there. But in the interim, let's use what the partners have to help us connect. Very good. So. Well, we've come to that point in uh, our, our session with the time that uh, I wanted to leave some time for questions and answers from the audience. So thanks very much for those insights on those questions. I'm going to jump right into uh, uh, the audience and uh, let's start with uh, Michael Gordon from uh, Wall Street Journal. Michael. Can you hear me okay now? Yeah, we got you now. Go ahead. Okay, sorry. I had to unmute. Uh, General Harrigan, I have um, uh, two questions for you, please. Um, the um, Obviously, as uh, uh, Dave mentioned, uh, there's a lot of um, media attention and um, governmental attention to the massing of Russian forces near Ukraine. What is the uh, Russian Air Force posture? What are they doing that's different uh, from normal? What units have been moved there? What capabilities um, are you concerned about, I, I guess, in terms of the Russian Air Force and their UAVs? And, um, you know, how much um, are they um, are they doing something differently now uh, from the air perspective with regard to Ukraine um, than they have done in the uh, immediate past? And I have one quick follow up. Hey, thanks uh, for that. And uh, great to hear from you. Uh, so as you can imagine, uh, we are working very closely uh, across the, the entire community to understand uh, the, the all domain operations that are occurring across the OR. And as that occurs, uh, what I would tell you is we keep an eye on that. We make sure it's, uh, it's being shared with the partners to the extent possible so we have a shared understanding. Uh, but as I talked to uh, General Deptula, we're largely focused on while we understand that we're, we're coming back to how we ensure we're appropriately uh, ensuring our teams are ready. The posture is where we need it to be and that we're working that um, in cooperation uh, with the alliance and uh, those allies and partners that are so critical to the way we're going to do business. And so, um, I, you know. My take is uh, while we do this from a, from a U.S. lens, the, uh, the partners also have great insights that should something change in terms of, uh, of what they're seeing, they're going to communicate that to help us all have a better understanding of uh, what options would then be available to us. Let me ask my follow-up, please. Um, how do you assess Ukrainian air defense capabilities and what do you think uh, might be done if one wanted to improve the deterrence by improving Ukraine's air defense capabilities against a prospective Russian threat? Well, certainly there's, there's work to be done there. And I, I think that's been highlighted in the press and it's an area that uh, uh, echelons above me, they're gonna make decisions on, uh, on how much uh, they uh, offer up to them. Uh, you know, from our end, uh, we, we've had, uh, at least at my level, the ability to, uh, in, um, 
different forums. I actually talked with uh, the Ukrainian air chief. This has not been recently, but we've had those conversations before. So there's relationships there. And, uh, you know, as, as we gain a, uh, a clearer understanding of, uh, of what their take is on the situation, I would expect that conversation to continue. Okay, I, I give up. Thank you. Okay, let's uh, move on to uh, John Turpak. John? Good morning, General. Thank you very much. Uh, kind of related to what Michael was asking, uh, wanted to know what, what are the operational ramifications of, uh, of trying to operate near the Russian S-300, S-400? Does that push you a lot farther back? Can you, can you operate in that area? Is, is that a, a drag on your day-to-day -day operations or something that you can work around? Given, given the proximity to uh, uh, the, their reach into uh, NATO areas. Yeah, thanks, John. So um, we have, over the, uh, really about the last 18 months, uh, continued to execute operations in international waters. Has not changed the way we do business, and, and that has not changed to this point. In fact, as we work with our partners and, and operate uh, whether that be in the Baltics or down in the Black Sea, we're going to operate in international waters uh, uh, with our partners, uh, with uh, particularly uh, in both those locations with, uh, with the U.S. Navy and some of the, the partner navies to uh, continue to refine our TTPs in the way we do business. And so uh, uh, as, as it stands right now, we're going to continue to do that based on uh, those things that we need to do together with our, our, uh, our partners and allies and uh, for ourselves, quite frankly, to continue the readiness that's required across the joint force. Okay, and with regards to Ukraine, uh, there are partnership ex uh, uh, exercises with pretty much everybody in uh, Eastern Europe. Can you tell us what kind of partnership exercises you may have had with Ukraine, not necessarily recently, but in the last few years? I think the last one we had was uh, Open Skies or Clear, I'm trying, Clear Skies, I think was the name of it. I can't remember the next last name of the exercise, but it was a couple years ago. But there's been other, uh, I would call them uh, lower level exercises and engagements, probably more appropriately termed, uh, to uh, ensure that uh, as, a, as a partner nation, we've, we've reached out to them and uh, continued uh, things like uh, force development and uh, I would call them uh, lower level activities that facilitate that relationship that's so important to us. Okay, but no, uh, no uh, aircraft and aircraft operating together kind of things. Correct. Okay, thank you so much. All right, William DeMasso. Hey, good morning, sir. Thanks very much. Appreciate your time and uh, looking, uh, looking down the road. Um, you know, when you when you mentioned weapons earlier in your conversation, it, it perked my ear up, and I wonder, uh, do you feel a, a strain on some of those uh, close air support capabilities that uh, may have been atrophied over the course of time? Thank you. So, from a, a close air support perspective, largely, uh, as I look at our force, um, we continue to find opportunities. Uh, to go train largely with our partners across Europe. And honestly, I feel very comfortable that 
as we talk about how we would operate with uh, their joint terminal air controllers, uh, their entities on the ground um, from the Baltics uh, down into the Med and, and even into uh, Romania, uh, we have had continued interaction with them that has allowed us to uh, keep our close air support uh, capabilities at, at the right level and uh, continue to improve our readiness. Uh, you know, largely as, as we continue to, to work our way through each of these nations, we, we'll go back and revisit them and uh, think our way through how we continue to raise our level of readiness, not just from the U.S. perspective, but also with our partners. And that's been an important part of uh, that um, broad engagement across the AOR that's facilitated some of the, the confidence and the, uh, and the trust that we've been working on uh, over the last uh, several years. Okay, thanks for that. Um, let's switch to uh, some questions that have been sent in through chat. Um, here's one from someone you know well, uh, Coach Fessler. Um, Russia often responds to our bomber task force missions by flying long-range aviation toward uh, the U.S. and uh, Canada. Can you talk about USAFE cooperation with NORAD and NORTHCOM, the western side of NATO, in responding to Russian long-range bomber missions? Man, uh, thanks for that, uh, Coach. So first off, uh, as Coach knows, we have been working hard uh, not only at the USAFE level, but from UCOM over to NORTHCOM, and I won't, I won't speak for General Walters, but acknowledging that uh, the, the COCOM to COCOM scenes is something that collectively we've recognized uh, was something that needed to improve over time. And so uh, to me, it starts with, and I'll just, it's really not, it's really for the broader enterprise, it starts with good I&W. And making sure that we've got a, a shared understanding of the indications and warnings and those those things that are going to trip a readiness um, enhancements and allow us then to properly posture ourselves. And so uh, what I've seen over time is that we've been able to ensure that has activities uh, would indicate something's going to happen. We're already sharing that information and uh, it has improved. Is it perfect? No, but the, uh, the ability to ensure that we are coordinating across the combatant commands or from USAFE directly to either the, uh, the 611th AOC or um, you know, directly into NORAD has improved significantly to the point that um, I know they are executing handoffs uh, from one AOC to the other, or if we're executing on the blue side with our bomber task force, the same thing's happening. This, this to me, though, is an area that we need to continue to work the command and control of it, uh, particularly as you talk about some of the global engagement exercises to make sure that should crisis arise, we understand the supported supporting relationships and then the nuances at the, the operational, the tactical level, how that's going to happen so that it's seamless for those that are actually executing. And, you know, you know, as well as I coach, there, there's still work to be done there and, and we need to keep pulling on that. But uh, I would offer, at least from my chair, that we've, we've made some significant improvements over time. Very good. Here's an interesting one from uh, Taylor uh, Heron. Sir, can you speak to the importance of counter-malign influence operations in the context of great power competition? 
How do you see this evolving? And what is USAPE doing to help address these gray zone operations? Yeah, that's a great question. And what I would start with is, first off, you, the collective, we need to acknowledge that, that this is part of the operational and strategic environment we're working in. And, and while we've um, acknowledged that, I can tell you, USAFE, we, we stood up an A39 directorate to work some of the, uh, the messaging you know, typically we used to rely on largely public affairs and it was it was kind of in that lens. And now acknowledging that, uh, hey, the, these gray zone activities are gonna occur across all domains. And we've got to make sure, particularly in the information domain, that uh, we're aligned with the combatant command, the other components. And then what I would highlight is there's some policy pieces we need to work our way through here, which is, um, you know, are you going to be proactive? Do you want to get out in front of this to try to shape the message? Um, and, and, and some of that, it, it takes some time and there's going to be some learning across uh, the entire scheme of operations that could occur there. But as we're seeing it right now, particularly in the environment that we operate in, first you got to recognize it and then have a strategy for what we're, what are the options that we want to present to try to inform policy which would then give us some decision space to operate in. And so um, I can share with you that, uh, you know, in, in Africa, we've made some, um, some progress there. We've been able to expose some malign activities and demonstrate that here's the truth. This is actually what's happening. Uh, but at the same time, there's plenty of work to be done here. And um, shaping this in a way, because a, a good example is, so when we do agile combat employment, how do we align that with information ops and operating in that zone? And so we've we've been doing some work with headquarters Air Force on how we bake some of that into the actual conemp to then take that on and operationalize it. But uh, it's it's an area of a lot of growth for us that uh, that we'll keep working on. It's a fascinating subject, and as you're you're talking, I I am reminded that. Uh, our four pillars of security, uh, diplomacy, information, military, and economic pieces, the United States of America uh, has cabinet-level organizations for three of those four, and the one that it doesn't have is information. And yet, in the 21st century, uh, it's becoming more and more and more of, a, of an issue of concern. So thanks very much. Um, for those insights, and overall, unfortunately, we've come to the end of our uh, of our of our hour. Uh, we'd like to thank you very much for you taking the time out of your very busy schedule to be here today. Uh, it was a it's great pleasure to be with you out at Nellis celebrating uh, the end of the uh, end of an era. Uh, but we wish you all the very best in your endeavors ahead. Challenging times, we know. And to those in the audience, um, we appreciate your support. Uh, in uh, attendance. And on behalf of the Mitchell Institute, I'd like to extend the uh, uh, best wishes for a great holiday season. Uh, and uh, we're hoping for a great aerospace power kind of year in 2022. So Merry Christmas and uh, see you next year.